This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Uh, welcome to the, the panel discussion this morning. My name is James Hewis and I'm our head of film programs at ACME Cinemas. Um, our discussion is entitled, This is Not a Documentary, What Grows Between the Cracks of Documentary and Narrative. Bentley and I were just discussing those tiny little fish that eat the dead skin off your feet. Maybe it's a bit like that. <laughs> anyway, we've discussed that so we can discuss uh, what actually grows between the cracks of documentary and narrative. Uh, look, we are obviously very much on the clock, mindful that there's a session coming in at 10 o'clock. Uh, so I'd like to welcome our illustrious uh, panel. Starting on the far end, we have uh, Emil <coughs> Corton wilson uh, Emil's most recent work uh, includes, but he's not limited to, uh, The Silent Eye, uh, which uh, we'll hopefully have a chance to talk about a little bit later, which was a commission by the Whitney Museum in, in New York. Uh, Ruin, which may or may not be a dramatic feature, or maybe it's in the growing in the cracks between documentary and narrative. Uh, a collaboration, in fact, that uh, I was involved with called Under the Wire, which was a series of uh, projections uh, and sounds which took place as part of the Melbourne Festival last year. Uh, uh, a feature film, Hail, uh, which also screened at the, the Venice Film Festival, uh, and of course, uh, Barsley, amongst a, a range of other activities. Please welcome Emil Cotton Wilson. Hi there. Uh, and just back uh, from the United States, uh, we're going to see a clip from one of the films that he's been working on a little bit later. Uh, to the left uh, of Emil, uh, are two representatives, members of Closer, uh, the Adelaide-based uh, production company, producer, excuse me, uh, Rebecca Summerton and uh, Matt Bates. Their collaborations include "I Want to Dance Better at, Parkney, uh, at Parties." Uh, Sam Klemke's Time Machine, 52 Tuesdays, uh, and Stuck in the Middle with You, which in fact uh, uh, was here, was commissioned by ACME. Please welcome Beck and Matt. Uh, and uh, breaking away from the post-Oscar celebrations uh, at George Clooney's uh, fancy house in Los Angeles, uh, he's gracing us with his presence. Please welcome Bentley Dean, filmmaker, DP uh, of Tanner, most recently, uh, A Sense of Self, First Footprints, and The President versus David Hicks, amongst others. Please welcome Bentley Dean. Uh, look, I guess appropriate to the, uh, the topic today, we're not actually going to talk about uh, the industrial mechanism so much as the creative decision-making process that has informed uh, these uh, remarkable filmmakers and artists' uh, work. And I'd like to begin with, um, I guess, a couple of statements, perhaps a couple of provocations uh, that, that we think, uh, well, at least I think, uh, are really integral as discussion points for, the, uh, for our session this morning, uh, which we'd like you to interact with too, please, at the end. Uh, firstly, why do we insist that drama and documentary, art and cinema... Galleries and cinemas, short and long form, seem to occupy different spheres. Filmmaking is, of course, the most uh, industrial of all art forms. Filmmaking is necessarily uh, about decisions, often pragmatic, usually, and necessarily pragmatic, but sometimes creative. And I'd suggest that as Anglo-Saxons, we can be, uh, our culture can be very obsessed with objectivity. Uh, seeking and revealing the truth, 
particularly in our media and most often in the documentary form, we must provide both sides of the story. But of course, there are at least three forms of the truth. There's my version, there's your version, and what actually happened. And I'd suggest, too, that our subject today is about that terrifyingly seductive no man's land, the cracks, uh, that reside between fiction and what is real, between drama and what is documentary, or what we, we call drama and what we call uh, uh, documentary. So each of our clips, uh, each of our uh, uh, guests, rather, have chosen clips of their work uh, that they will be presenting uh, individually, and then we're going to have a, a broader-based conversation. And as I said, we've left aside a little time at the end for you to, to make some comments and ask them questions. Uh, so first up, we have uh, uh, quite a remarkable short piece uh, from Beck uh, and from Matt, which is, I want to dance better at, partner, at, at parties. So uh, do you want to give a little bit of context uh, first to what we're about to see and then subsequent to the piece we can talk a little bit about how, uh, how unique it is and how the creative collaboration came together? Sure. Um, it came out of uh, a thing called The Hive, which I remember we, we were there together, weren't we? I just yeah. remembered that this morning, um, which was a, an ABC uh, Adelaide Film Festival initiative where they put the likes of uh, us in a room together with, um, non, with non-filmmakers, I guess, with uh, choreographers, with um, painters. I don't know. There was all sorts, wasn't there? Um, Lynette Walworth was there. Uh, to see what sort of alchemical reactions would take place. Um, and there was a production outcome at the end. So, um, so when you say there was a production outcome at the end, it meant that that it, collaboration had to yield a something. Well, I mean, it was a sort of Darwinian swamp of um, whoever's idea kind of was the best got the money. <laughs> so that's the only way I can describe it. Um, but they were hoping... Com- I think we all came with projects or some people came with projects and then... Other things just sort of spontaneously happened in conversations at the pub. Most of the most of what the good that took place happened at, in the pub. Basically, it was where you met people, you just talked, and then suddenly, boom. That's how I met Gideon uh, Obazanek, who's a choreographer with uh, used to be at Chunky Move in Melbourne. Um, we just got talking about. Um, I think we started talking about how could we make a documentary live on stage. That was the initial idea and he'd been sort of doing that and that's so he, he told me about this uh, dance piece that he'd done called I Want to Dance Better at Parties where he'd interviewed just average men about their relationship with dance and he'd met this guy called one of the guys there were seven guys and I think on stage you heard them this sort of documentary interview and then people were dancing sort of interpreting the story um, and he just told me about this very simple story about this guy called Philip whose wife had died in, in a car accident and he'd taken up Latin ballroom uh, as a kind of way to kind of uh, overcome his grief it was the most simple story most sort of and over that we decided to sort of how far could we push the kind of the form I guess so that's kind of the back, long rambly backstory okay well let's uh, cue the video and have a look and discuss it subsequently slow fade up <laughs> <laughs> we're doing this very dramatic to you. make you unsettled um, so just if we can talk a little bit about the process uh, within the context of the hive, how did you and Gideon determine to work together? Was that preordained in some kind of formal way? Preordained? No, we met at the pub and just met at the pub. <laughs> <laughs> just decided that we should go for the money. Let's come up with something. No, um, no, it was quite pragmatic. We were like, okay, we want to make something together. We just sort of got along. It was just a conversation. It was like, bam, you know, when you just get along with someone, it was like, all right, let's let's make something together. Um, 
So what we did, we interviewed, this was quite a few years ago as well. I only chose this because this was the most obvious kind of hybrid film that we made. We made quite a few, but they're, they're sort of more complicated, I guess. This is the most obvious one. Um, we did this master interview with Philip, uh, who's the guy with the glasses that sort of segues from the actor. Um, and, and we had this sort of epic interview with him. And from that, those transcripts, um, we actually developed a Sydney Theatre Company play. It so it happened that Sydney Theatre Company wanted to work with Gideon. Uh, he took this idea to them. Um, we developed a play. It was like a two-hander with uh, Stevie Rogers and um, the actress that you saw in the film. Um, Elizabeth Navin. Elizabeth Navin, sorry, I've forgotten her name. Um, <laughs> and from that, so that was amazing because it was almost like a kind of rehearsal for the film. So we, we had this kind of uh, drama, uh, this uh, stage play. And from the stage play, I wrote a screenplay. Um, so, which was very different to the play. It took elements of the play, elements of the original transcript, kind of smooshed them together. Um, and we just knew we wanted to put the real Philip in. It was a bit of an experiment of like, can we have the actor, uh, you know, doing this drama piece and then it's kind of, seg how do we segue to the real guy? I didn't want to have this, I don't know, I just felt like it was more organic or it was more real to not have this sort of just omnipotent, faceless voiceover over the top or just a pure actor play the part you I don't think you'd I think you'd lose some of the heart or something if you didn't see the real person so it was a matter of like how do we do that how do we see the real guys so we we just we did a lot of that where you kind of the opening scene is in this guy sort of narrating you see Stevie on the bed kind of he suffers from sort of heart palpitations and these horrible dreams and then you hear this voice narrating and then you kind of track across and there's there's the real guy um, so from the actor to the real guy. So immediately you kind of just, there's the premise of the film and it sort of opens up from there. And you were saying uh, just before that you, what you were interested in was that uh, you wanted to, f how would you film a documentary on stage? What, what does that mean? Well, I just wondered if you could literally just, uh, could you have, how, do you, how would you turn like a sort of the Graham Kennedy show, how would you make that into like an art documentary? Like could you have a kind of hosted could it happen live on stage? I don't, that was just the beginning of it. I don't know what that actually meant. That was the sort of beginning of the exploration. It was like, like this. Could you segue from this to a bit of an archival footage and then actors come on stage and do a recreate? I don't know. It was, that was the sort of beginning of it. But Gideon had been doing this in dance anyway. He, he introduces documentary elements into dance live on stage, which I always think is amazing. So this spontaneous things can happen within the construct of a, ver of a choreographed piece of dance, of performance, which I, was just really interesting. Talk about the cracks. That's an amazing crack to me. And how do you structure that into a fixed performance? He, in in well, Gideon's case. Gideon, well, in Gideon's case, he should be here to answer that. He, um, well, I think did he that inform what you were doing in terms of your own collaboration with him? You were seeking well, to do precisely that? No, because this, no, I don't think it's quite the same. Um, I can't really talk about that. I mean, okay. it's, he just sets up on stage the the environment for which cracks can appear if that mm -hmm. makes sense uh, we did another collaboration stuck in the middle with you with Gideon and that also played with documentary and, and drama form and uh, so that comes from a, a work he did a, a dance work which had a member of the audience who was a performer questioning the dancers on stage and so that, that's sort of one example of how yeah he that's right of, he, that's he an amazing finds piece. cracks and he kind of uh, 
breaks open. Sydney dancer kind of performing on stage and there's this omnipotent voice who's one of you guys in the audience who's a bit bored starts going, what is this stuff? <laughs> like, and it starts to question it. And then the, the, the performers, is the, you know, Sydney dancer doing this amazing kind of routine and one of them trying to hold the microphone and answer the questions as this guy interrogates them, saying, are you a little bit old to be a dancer at this point? And they're trying to answer the question. And so then we made that work into a virtual reality short film mm. which um, was commissioned by Acme. Yeah, so... And you appear on stage, so you sort of like, you're bored in the audience, you fall asleep and then suddenly you're on stage and the dancer's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> sort of trying to dance around you. Mm. And talk about the evolution, therefore, into uh, the different environment of when it, was, uh, when it was here, it was downstairs in what we call the light world, which is the entrance as you come in off uh, Flinders Land. So it's a very uncontained, which is amazing, I think, unmediated space, save that yeah. it is a VR work, so you need to wear the goggles. But part of the... Part of the spectacle was literally walking in randomly, or not me because I work here, uh, I do walk in randomly, but that you observe this kind of curious dance of people as they're observing those that are observing what's taking yeah. place and immersing we, themselves on screen. We love that kind of meta thing and it worked with the themes of the, the piece itself because you, when you appear on stage as the, with the, with you know, not with the goggles on, but you appear on stage and you, you, sort, of, you're in, sort of, in, you interrupt the performance. Mm. Um, and you start to talk to Sydney Dance, they start to talk to you, and then they encourage you to start dancing. So by the end of it, you're, you're doing these kind of weird moods, which, of course, and we set it up downstairs so that you, the people waiting for the next turn sat down there watching you watch yourself, you know, blah, blah, it's a dream within a dream within a thing, yeah. So it kind of all fed into itself, which is beautiful. So you're on show. That's the beautiful thing about VR is that you're on show. Mm. You are, you become... A performer, and you're a performer in the piece that we made. If that makes any sense. So, in that sense, it's very much a, a kind of a folding out of what what was a short film, what was a dance, what was a dance piece, a short film, and now is a, as an experience. It's an utterly solipsistic exercise for the person immersed in that experience with the goggles on. It's interacting with something that has isn't constrained by time, isn't constrained by narrative is an open invitation for it to be endless and utterly ephemeral. Uh, so, and it takes place in an environment which is neither a cinema nor it wasn't in any of the galleries here. It was in, a, in an open public space that invited people in or at least invited people to, to regard it as just complete art wank if they wanted to. Uh, how much of that space do you find yourself over the course of, which is to say, uh, well, I mean, all of you really, but I think perhaps Beck... And Matt, in particular, you seem to be moving more, more towards an environment where you're removing progressively the shackles of being in an environment like this and saying, we'll deliver you a feature film that is 70 minutes. It'll start at one o'clock. It'll finish at half past two. It'll cost you $17 or $15 or $12. Yeah. So moving away from the formalities and the rigours and the constraints of this beautiful black box into something that's altogether more what? I remember being in this very chair not that long ago playing Sam Klimke's Time Machine, our last film here, and um, we were schlepping around Australia trying to get bums on seats, which was really difficult to do. And we sort of, um, it was a real mission, wasn't it? It was yeah. like actually harder than the making the film in, in many respects. Mm. And not long after that, I um, made a film for the New York Times, one of their op docs, and it, and it was just seen by a billion people. And I just thought, fuck, that's, that's so beautiful. Like, <laughs> you can make a five-minute film... You know, you make this like, you pour your heart and soul into this like three years of your life into this film and not many people see it. And then you'd make a five minute film for the New York Times and just, I just love that idea that the, we're not, 
we're not constrained by this anymore. We can make films for the New York Times or it's fragmented, hasn't it? There are new platforms opening up. There's virtual reality. There's, you know, all the, we, we can be journalists for the New York Times. That's amazing mm. to me. That, I mean, I never thought I would be a kind of video journalist for that. Uh, for some reason that really, I was, I loved the idea of that. It's um, partly pragmatic and opportunistic as well, I think. It's just, you know, as filmmakers, you have to see where there's opportunities to make work. And so you look for the spaces or the funding or the whatever, wherever it is that you can do something. And it doesn't really matter if it's in here or it's out there. You're making work and hopefully people are seeing it. That's right. And documentary, at least in the traditional notion of documentary, is some parts pragmatism and opportunism, isn't it? That's (laughs) filmmaking, I think, just Mm. boiled down to its essence really and you Emil you've you've sought to kind of throw off some of the shackles of the constraints of just <coughs> being destined for these kinds of environments of, of cinema perhaps can you before we uh, move into uh, no sorry that's the last clip we're going to screen but tell us a little bit about how your practice has evolved over the course of the last 10 years for example yeah, um, I I started out making sort of experimental Super 8 documentaries and was, you know, inspired by people like Stan Brackage and was, you know, scratching um, and painting onto Super 8 when I was like 13 or 14 and then made documentaries for about 10 years and then made a couple of dramatic feature films and um, I suppose having had the experience of those two feature films, um, you know, being you know, really happily successful on festival circuit not being released that you know really much at all internationally commercially but doing well at venice and and things like this i was sort of interested in uh well if you know those kind of films which in my mind were quite commercial it was always kind of confronting when you think you're making something (laughs) you know so that 40 minute silent sequence with tearing white light and (laughs) i thought people would dig that um so I sort of thought, well, actually, fuck it. I'm just going to make exactly what I want. I was making, you know, uncompromising stuff already, but I was like, well, I might as well just do explore um, and push myself, I suppose, and push my craft and, and, ex- and just experiment more and return to that, that, um, that space where I had total autonomy. So the last feature film I made was a film called Silent Eye, which is a, a feature-length film. It was about Cecil Taylor, the uh, free jazz pianist, and Min Tanaka, the Bhutto performer. It was filmed over four days in New York with a budget of about, I don't know, like 10 grand or something, and that included airfares and camera hire and stuff. Um, And uh, borrowed the money from uh, an ex-partner of mine because she's a doctor, and and then um, subsequently managed to get about, get the budget back from a philanthropist in New York, um, Robert Balecki, who... Uh, really was a huge free jazz fan so took a risk managed to get my money back and then um, in the process uh, Cecil was having a, a large-scale retrospective at the Whitney Museum and met the curators there um, at the time I was making a I'm still making a larger scale feature length it's like a sci-fi time travel free jazz biopic about Cecil as a time travel traveler um, which is I've been making for uh, How can years. you make a, a feature film about a time traveller? That seems kind of antithetical, doesn't it? I mean, it's got to be... Longer? <laughs> Freer? Um, shorter? Um, and so that that was initially financed by a, the Afters um, Fellowship. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it's a great fellowship that they have where they give you $50,000. Um, 
and it's open to non-graduates. And uh, so I got received that in 2014, managed to get to New York with that money. Um, and because I built, had built up a relationship with Cecil, ended up shooting this film called The Silent Eye, um, which subsequently was had its world premiere at the Whitney Museum and has since sort of been an interesting journey in terms of finding a place for it in film festivals. It did have its international premiere at Rotterdam Film Festival um, in January, which was really wonderful um, because they had a section there for films that could traverse both um, you know, museum or, or festival space, I suppose. And and in terms of what we're talking about today, when people ask what this film is, I consider it consider it a documentary. Um, it's but I suppose it's 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 a performance film. So it's it's silent, seventy minutes of music, and there's thirty seconds of poetry at the thirty five minute mark. But over the course of the seventy minutes, uh, Cecil Taylor's home is filled with this uh, remarkable arcana from the last sixty years of his piano playing. So. You know the walking stick that um, that uh, John Cassavetes gave him, and he's got Allen Ginsberg's letters here, and there's this, you know, photos and amazing music and poetry, and this remarkable um, four-story bluestone uh, brownstone in in um, Brooklyn. So over the course of this performance film, where these two men are pl- uh, performing in one room, you slowly bear witness to details from Cecil's life, and I, and so in that sense, it's it's a it's a kind of biopic, I suppose, but a biopic that is primarily filtered through the love between these two men who've been collaborating for forty years. I, I suppose it's a doc- documentary. I mean, it's screened in a museum and it's screened in a weird section of Rotterdam, and I hope it'll screen other places, you know. But I didn't care what it was when I made it. You know, I just wanted to film these two guys who I, I love dearly. So, did you want to? Uh, can, can we stop the session? Wash it now. Like, <laughs> I want to. I want to see it. Hopefully, it, it can, yeah. at, at what point during the making of uh, this particular work were you? Did you start considering the destination? Well, it was going to go to the Whitney first because that was part of the kind of the agreement. I think, as it were, is that, is that right? As part of the retrospective, uh, it, they they wanted me to make something, but mm. they also wanted to see it before they. They gave me, um, well, I can tell you, they gave me the princely sum of $1,000 ah. um, for the light. But so it was, like a, it was like, you're making this thing anyway. We know you're making it. We'll give you a grand. Um, you know, we'd love to show it, you know. Um, and then it was a matter of negotiating with the curators. It was like, well, I'd rather show a 70-minute piece and I'd rather show it in a cinema. So we didn't show it in the museum, in the, in the gallery, open gallery space. I, I argued to show it twice in, a, in, the, in the cinema there. Mm-hmm. And they agreed to that. So that was like a nice compromise. Okay. Um, so you, you determined that it was, I guess, uh, as unconventional in a sense that the film is, you determined that it was a film that was going to begin and end at a particular time and that the audience would effectively stay with the film over the course of that time rather than in a gallery environment, an open environment where people could simply move in and out as they chose. Yeah, I've, I've made lots of... Uh, done lots of video installation work where that's the case and that's a beautiful um, thing to engage with certainly it just this film um, there there is a narrative it's unbelievably subtle and minimal um, and, but you know you only understand uh, the depth of the length of these these um, men's working relationship over the course of the entirety of the film so it was really important that people sit down and just watch it uh, look, I would like to, we would like now to screen a clip from Tanner, just to sort of jump around a bit. Uh, Bentley, do you want to just talk a little bit about the clip that we're about to see and uh, put it into a context? Uh, no, and then we can because talk. it was chosen for me, so I don't know ah. what we're about to see. But um, but you, you, you uh, were but involved a, in the making <laughs> of Tanner, though, I, was, I was. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's a... Uh, I, I define it as a feature film, like a narrative feature film, but 
based on real events and certainly borrowed from you know uh, documentary filmmaking um, uh, techniques that Martin Butler, my co-director, and I had built up over the last ten years. It's our, our first feature film, and um, um, maybe I can talk a little yep. bit more to the clip once Absolutely. we see it, know what it is. Perhaps before we talk quite specifically about uh, the the clip, can you um, tell us about the the genesis of the film? How you happen to be in that place, that culture, that village, and how it became this particular story, this particular film? Yep. Um, really, the genesis was about 12, 12 years ago, where I was um, uh, sent there by Martin Butler, my, um, who was uh, acting pro- uh, executive producer at Dateline, which is an international news and current affairs program on SBS. And um, to, to do a story, like a, a feature news and current affairs story about um, a guy called Prophet Fred who'd split away from a millenarian movement and caused lots of uh, a big fracas. And um, so not related to this particular story. But I did find myself on the, on the, on the lip of a very active volcano um, discussing geopolitics with the chief there and was just blown away by the whole experience. And, and um, you know, ever since then, I'd been looking for an excuse to go back. Um, uh, and it was it was really uh, because we had a, like a, a gap in our schedule. Um, I my wife wanted to have a have, have split split from her job. Um, we had two small kids that we wanted to sort of introduce to worlds that were not the suburbs of Melbourne. Not that the suburbs of Melbourne aren't great. Um, and I said, well, you know, what about Tanner? And so I reconnected with this great people that I'd met there last time and. Um, said um, with the idea simply it was simply you know uh, uh, to make a film you know with 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 a community there no 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 idea of what that might be but just like you know choose choose location see if people are up for it and um, uh, and if they want to do it like you know live there for a long time learn as much as possible make a film together it was as, as simple as that Part of the, the, you know, the reason, the rationale was actually, you know, um, you know, coming from a documentary background, I was, I was sort of like, um, it, it was a lazy impulse in a way. It was like, uh, I didn't want, I didn't this time, I didn't want to be, you know, have, have my have to have like sleep with my camera with a finger on the button, going like, you know, I don't want to miss the turning point in this narrative, like, you know, as you have to do with like, you know, documentaries. I actually just wanted to chill out, you know, go to the waterfall when everyone else goes to the waterfall and have a swim, like, you know, have carver when everyone else has carver and, and just have a, a, a fine time, like really a prolonged, interesting, relaxing uh, time. So really one of the motivations was, was, was laziness, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't use that in the, the marketing <laughs> uh, on the poster. So how did, how did the what began and given your, uh, <laughs> your tendency to laziness... Uh, <laughs> But, but how did it evolve into this particular film? So, I mean, it, it does, and there's, there's obvious questions to ask, but I'll ask them nonetheless. I mean, it mm. does presume, uh, and this is all on a razor's edge, I presume. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that part of the mm. world and I'm obviously not a film practitioner, but on a razor's edge seeking the complicity of uh, these people, this mm. particular culture, mm. how did you set about navigating that and at what point did it become... Or what, at what point were the seeds of an idea? At what point did they yield into something that resembled? Was that a structure, or was it? What did your laziness yield? <laughs> well, it, it, they've got a great organisation in Vanuatu called the Vanuatu Culture Centre, um, who you have to go through if you've got a, a film sort of project, um, and they basically ensure that you uh, work respectfully, you know, with the community and also the government at, at large. Um, uh, they 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 introduce you. They 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 uh, you know essentially negotiate a contract 
um, with the folks that you're you're working with, and you know, dip in and out, you know, of, of the process. And um, uh, the I, I knew uh, a chief there called Jacob Capere from like that 12 years ago, and so I reconnected with him, and and um, I you know just talked to him about this idea, and he said, like, you've got to go to this village, Yakel. And um, uh, one of the, uh, an anthropologist, uh, uh, Kirk Huffman, who actually helped set up the Culture Centre many, many, many years ago, also said, you've got to go to Yakel. And so we went to Yakel and, and, and um, our, our pitch to them initially was just to, to show them a, a, a film so that, you know, it was the best way we could think of as to get across the idea of how we wanted to collaborate and we thought, we, we couldn't think of a better example than um, Rolf de Heer's Ten Canoes. <laughs> and um, uh, because, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was like, you know, uh, because it's, it's set in, in, in prehistorical times and, and they're living very traditionally and we knew that they would be naturally interested in other people, you know, living that way and they, indeed they were. Um, but it also uh, gave us an opportunity to talk about their process because it was very much a collaboration and the story did arise out of like, you know, lots and lots of um, uh, talking and, and working together, and um, you know they loved it. You know, like uh, and said like let's let's start tomorrow. They were extremely enthusiastic, and um, but we didn't start tomorrow because I mean we, we we couldn't. We had to like prepare things, and but they said meanwhile we'll build you a house, and and um, we said well we think it'll take seven months. Um, outlined all of the stages that, that that we thought might be necessary. We'll have to talk for a few months before we actually start you know, uh, throwing down some ideas and then we'll start the filming and then we'll, we'll, we'll edit it uh, in, within the community as well so you see the whole process and, you know, talked about payments and negotiated, like, you know, whether they'd be traditional or not traditional and, you know, it was like, you know, big, it's a very formal, contractual, it's not, not, not literate mm. but very, very formal legal uh, process. Um, the story itself... Um, really sort of like a, a, appeared almost like on the second day mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but we didn't come back to it so many months later because we were, we were taken to uh, a, a big meeting that was happening on the other side of the island where uh, a, 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 you know all the tribes were, were gathering for in the Nakamal which is their big meeting place um, to resolve a conflict about whether or not um, uh, a, a couple who had fallen in love can you know remain on that path because their chiefs had actually, you know, promised them to other people as was uh, tradition. And, um, you know, during that meeting it almost came to, they almost, people almost came to blows and, but anyway, it was all sorted out. They, they said, they, they, everyone agreed, okay, they, they can be together, but, you know, you owe us a woman from next time, you know, pigs and carver exchanged. Um, and someone, you know, came up to us afterwards and said, listen, you know, it wasn't always this easy. Like, up until about 30 years ago, this sort of incident would have resulted in, in death um, and, and probably war. So, so, to, to so major the, the transgression. Except for this one incident where a young couple um, decided rather than go the way of their chiefs, they, they actually ran away and were dragged back and they ran away again and, and, and they actually killed themselves um, uh, rather than... Uh, follow the chief's wishes, and and um, uh, which which blew my mind. Like you know, how and why does that happen in a, in a, in a, the context of that society? Um, but what blew my mind even more is uh, hearing the the fact that as a result of that, you know, came this song from their spirits that that went right across around the island, that essentially um, was from their point of view 
change the minds of everybody. Mm. Uh, uh, and um, from that point in time, uh, they started allowing love marriage. Mm. And, um, and I thought, well, fuck me, you know, that, that's amazing. Um, but I didn't want to, like, say, okay, well, that's the story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we just, uh, when we finally did set up, I, I went over with my wife and two young children. Martin, my co-director, would fly in and fly out on occasion. And um, uh, we just talked for about three months. You know, it was just fantastic. It was just like, you walk up from the hut, you know, and you just talk and you, you go to places like beautiful, you know, waterfalls. Um, um, they tell you the story behind like, you know, you know dream, dream, dreaming type stories behind, you know, rocks and songs. And um, you, we would reveal lots of, you know, embarrassing intimacies, um, like, you know, went both ways. They would, you know, tell, you know, sometimes it was the men just ourselves like saying like all, all the times that, you know, we we'd <coughs> fucked up having affairs and, you know, the trauma that that had led to and, um, you know, best place for a route and, you know, all, 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 you know, on the sly and, you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, Where was that? <laughs> it was, it's in the film. Um, <laughs> that was, a, there was a lot of like, you know, in keeping with the subject of this, there was a lot of truth meets art in this like we, we did actually film in the place where the best place to have a route on the sly and um Plot ten, uh, that's right ten. <laughs> uh and, and in fact the casting was like that so during that process of talking you know um th- th- this song kept on being sung and and it was the song of the lovers and i finally got a translation and again my mind got blown all all over again i said well how about that and they all agreed that okay yes that's a great story because it shows the strength of our custom our culture and that's I think that that was their main aim, you know, to show that, you know, they're adaptable and strong. And um, so th- we embarked in, on, on that story. And, um, and then as, as, we're, as we're sort of like deciding, okay, well, in that story you need a chief, you know, and, and um, you know, be, be, before you could <coughs> say, say anything or even nail down the story, it was just like already decided, so lots of, lots of talking, okay, yep, that's Chief Charlie. You know, was the actual chief. So he had to be <laughs> played the chief, and you're just like going, "Oh, geez, I hope he's good," you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because th- there was clearly no way that I was going to argue against him <laughs> uh, uh, not not being in that role. And um, the same thing went, went for the shaman. Um, you know, uh, it, it did actually get a bit hairy when it was clear that we needed an enemy tribe. Um, when they, they, they actually suggested, like, you know, we should actually ask the people over the other side of the river whom we're, we're enemies with. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, are you sure that's a, that's a good idea? Uh, and they said, yeah, yeah, it'll be great. You know how in the movie, like, you know, we, we come together at the end of the movie, our tribes come together. It'll be like that in real life. You know, we'll, we, 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 you know it, it, it'll happen. Anyway, so they send an emissary over there um, without, without my knowledge. Um, he gets told to fuck off, you bastard. Um, uh, and that's the worst thing you can say to a Tanese man because uh, uh, it means that you don't have any right to your property. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there was a there was a fight. Um, next thing I know, there's you know men bursting in on the Nakama. I've just had like sculled some carver. I'm all really pleasant sort of frame of mind, and they're all pointing their finger at me. And and um, you know, it it really almost did did implode, um, except for being saved by our our culture director. He told me exactly what to do, which is essentially make peace with pigs and carver and, and the film could proceed. So that's, there was a lot of like that art, they, they turned out to be right actually, we ended up casting some friendly people instead, but um, uh, they, they, they were right because like when we had the premiere, the world premiere, which was back in the village, 
um, they all came. The enemy tribe came, um, as did people from all over the over the joint, and they loved it. And then they're, they're now champions of the film, and they're all good mates. So, they're they're. Uh, their intuition was was correct. I think the power of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, just just to go back a little. So you you'd always determined that this was not going to be a, a well, let's call it a documentary. It was always mm. going to be a fictionalized version, a dramatized version rather. Again, I'm kind of struggling to use the right language, but a dramatized version of a series of events, uh, key events culturally. Uh, for, for, for those tribes in yep. that particular place. Yep. So you'd always determined that it was going to be dramatised. That's right. It, yep. was, it, was a, it, was, it was a cinematic interpretation of that song, mm-hmm. the, 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 the lover's song, their spirit song. Um, but within that, um, you know, we wanted to be extremely you know, rigorous about you know, you know, keeping it real, like, like h- how you do things, like in terms of like conflict resolution like you know how it how it would happen so you know for any we knew what the structure of the film would be at a certain stage we sort of all all agreed to it there's lots of reading reading the story again and again and again and then people say oh you know it'd be better if we 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 change that bit and so you change it but but then it evolved in one more step when we we actually came to the point where we're shooting on the day and um uh say it's a, a a a a what's called the bearing of the club it's like a, a, a big big meeting between tribes you'd You'd gather hundreds of people and, and you get there on the day and say, okay, um, well, well, where would the, the peacemaking tribe come from? And they, they said, well, they come from exactly that area. They walk in this line, they sit down there and, um, and say, well, and, th- and then, you know, who would come in? And then it's all, all this very formal structure of, about like who would, who would do the talking first? <coughs> what would they say after that? How would people react? And then we'd, so we'd, we'd start off the day sort of like talking for a couple of hours and then we'd film that. Like in that clip that we uh, saw there with the, when the, the meeting of the Christians was, was exactly like that with that they, they weren't from our village, they were from an, an, another village and, and we approached them uh, essentially saying like, oh, you know, what, what would happen if two people, traditionally living people came to seek sanctuary uh, because they were in love, you know, and they came to you, what, what would happen? And they they, des- they described that. Well, like our, our, our um, glass women, our spirit women, would actually sense them, sense them out first and, and approach them, and um, uh, and then bring them to the leader, and you know he would offer sanctuary, and um, and and so we said, okay, well let's film that, and so that's what we did, you know, and uh, I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Um, the documentary background really helped because I. How do you put yeah, a structure so on that then? If or you were then very observational, but not knowing what would happen from one moment to the next. That that that's right, and 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 um, that's without fail at the end of each day each scene was better than you could possibly have imagined for that Hmm. so you know you had an idea about like what you know certain dramatic points you want to hit even lines of dialogue you wanted to hit but beyond that it was extremely loose and so you just have to sort of like have your antenna up about what's going on in, in in real life so I guess in that way it was a bit you know boring from from both both worlds and and making that stuff between the cracks, that smelly stuff that fish like between the cracks. Yeah. Uh, just very quickly before we uh, move on to uh, some material that uh, Emil is going to show. So the, the finished film had its premiere at Venice. Uh, you've obviously travelled to myriad festivals. It's been released in cinemas. Uh, you've obviously just come back from... Um, a little award ceremony. You've travelled largely with uh, the, the various people involved in the film. 
how mindful and at what point were you mindful of what happens when the circus leaves town, when, you, when they go back to particularly some of the younger people in the film? Uh, like what, what, well, two questions. What is the resonance of the film most mm. particularly for them mm. and how will they negotiate that? And yeah. what impact did it have, therefore, on, on that group of people and that, that culture? Yeah. This was part of the discussion at the very beginning. Like, you know, um, we, we always wanted to make a good film and we thought, OK, well, what if it's really successful? I don't think we quite imagined it was going to be nominated for Academy Award. Um, uh, but we said, OK, well, it's potentially could, you know, what, it, what if it just goes, you know, bananas, OK? Um, and so we discussed that. Like, you know, it could be that, you know, a lot of people will, you know, want to come, including a lot of jerks. Um, uh, so, you know, how do you feel about that? And, um, and we, we talked about that like at every single, every mm. single stage of the, of the process, but um, their, their response was, hasn't, hasn't wavered. Mm. It's essentially, you know, well, do you promise people will come? Because <laughs> we want people to come um, uh, because they're, they're extremely outward looking and they're proud of their culture and um, they also earn some money from tourists coming, um, but they're completely in control of that. Like, and, and they said, well, what if it gets too much? And uh, they said, well, we'll just close down the road. We've done that before too. And mm. so they just like, you know, stop people from coming up. Um, and so that's what we do. Um, so, uh, you know, I had been, you know, asking if there'd been more, more people coming. And I said, like, not, not really. It's about the same. Maybe that's, that's, that's going to explode. But um, in terms of it changing their culture or whatever, um, I think, you know, when, when you look at it, you think, oh, and when, I think when people look at, think about traditional indigenous people that they, they, they somehow think of them as as locked in time and you know mm. separate apart from the world and and um, you know nothing could be further from the truth like mm. they're half an hour from the, the main town um, they know about the outside world some of them have mobile phones um, they're certainly more aware of you know us here than we are of them and uh, th that's what I found you know completely um, amazing about them is that uh, they their ability to change on their own terms mm. okay like it's like there's some really good stuff about the way our ancestors have lived and we're going to keep that but we're going to uh, you know change some things that for the good of the society and one of them's ha happened to be you know marriage like yeah. love love marriage that's that's just one example an emblematic example of their you know an amazing adapt adaptability so they're confident i'm confident you know at, at a certain point you have to take their actually take their word for it so they're in they're in charge mm. Mindful of the clock, uh, we're going to have a look at a clip from Emil Corton Wilson's Underwood. Let's have a look at the clip, uh, which is... Can I say something first? Please. Um, it's, a, it's a clip from an unfinished film, so this is just a selection of, you know, uh, rushes and, uh, yeah, I mean, just to give you very, very quick context, um, it began as a feature documentary about a child murderer, Kevin Underwood, and that I started working on about 10 years ago, and then... Um, got to Oklahoma City and met a group of young people and uh, from that evolved a feature film starring those um, young people called The Empyrean and then Underwood is now grown into something else and I don't know quite what that is yet so I thought I'd show you guys while I still don't know. <laughs> that was very short. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crazy short. So <laughs> tell us about the, well again, the evolution from something that you'd been, a story that you stumbled upon, you'd done considerable research about, you went across to the United States, cue Emil. Yeah, look, um, as I said, uh, after making Hail and Ruin, which were, you know, um, entered into the dramatic section of feature films, even though both of them, as um, Bentley was saying, have 
you know, huge documentary sections. Some scenes are purely observational documentary with two friends. Other scenes are based on, um, I suppose, the, the thing that I'm most interested uh, in when taking my documentary background, putting it into a, like a fictional context, is searching for um, an emotional truth or a psych- psychological truth uh, that would otherwise not be able to be attained through documentary. So um, in Hale, for example, uh, I was uh, unbelievably close friends with Daniel Jones, the lead actor. Um, he was unbelievably in love with and still in love with a woman called Leanne Letch. And uh, he'd had unbe- you know, a very, very violent background, um, had grown up homeless and on the, on, on the streets and had been in and out of jail many times. And so by creating a, a fictional narrative in which he lost his, his love, the love of his life, and was reduced to a form of sort of savagery, he was able to chart a psychological space that would otherwise have um, paled in comparison when just talking about um, either that as a hypothetical or, you know, portraying uh, Danny in a, in a documentary context, which I've done with films like Varsity. So I'm really interested in, in that. So pe- casting people to play versions of themselves. And uh, so in the case of... And I'm also interested in continuing to kind of spin the compass and find other access points into this space we're talking about this morning. So in the case of the Cecil Taylor film, um, that's a biopic, but it's a biopic filtered through the the narrative conceit of time travel. So it's a sci-fi biopic. Um, I wanted to. I was very inspired by Jonas Mikas and his use of intertitles and um, long form, long form uh, narrative and sort of diary form, diary filmmaking. And uh, but I think again, there's a there's a truth there and the truth of the time travel aspect of the narrative comes from Cecil's unbelievable like shamanic uh, compulsive obsession with uh, music and the the space between when a note is conceived and a note is played and uh, and the way in which there's an elasticity of time in that in that moment so um, it's not an imposed thing it's actually very much an extrapolation of his ongoing concerns with um, the more formal and uh, conceptual and um, esoteric at times aspects of making music. So um, the same thing applies with this this clip. Um, it, uh, having met uh, you know upwards of sort of thirty or forty young people in Oklahoma City in mid two thousand fifteen, I was really struck by the there was a very simple set of questions that we would ask again and again. Um, one was about uh, recurring dreams, another about recurring nightmares, um, ideas about love, and also thoughts about the afterlife. So it was sort of four points on the compass and we'd kind of just keep riffing on those on those four questions. Um, but what arose from uh, especially the love question was this unbelievable sense of anxiety, this palpable anxiety about the risk of love, the risk of connecting with people, the growing um, fractious nature of... Uh, you know, social media and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that sort of vertiginous fall of committing to another human being um, as a young person seemed more frightening to the 18-year-olds I was speaking to than it did seemingly for me somehow. So there's an interest in this idea of anxiety about the future and that also then being transposed with a lot of the pe- people I was speaking to, especially in these smaller towns in Oklahoma, are, you know, economically... Um, a lot of working class young kids, a lot of kids who would rather do sex webcam work in their mum's um, bedroom than get a shitty minimum wage job at the local convenience store um, or deal drugs, you know. And so incarceration was rife, um, drugs and meth were rife, um, 
and also this anxiety seemed to be very rife. So uh, decided to make a film that is a in tone, again, I'm not really quite sure what it's going to be, but it's sort of a, a pointillist ensemble film about a series of characters and um, love stories. But as they unfold, uh, you uh, transpose this uh, apocalypse kind of conceit, but it's but it's filtered through very real nightmares that uh, these young people are having and also the way in which pop culture infuses those nightmares. So the number of references to Scream or zombie films or batman and and so it's a it's a it's a comment on america it's it's kind of an american tragedy because there are these young people in this part of the world who should be flourishing and there aren't enough nutrients in the soil for them to flourish um it's about fear and love and a bunch of stuff and i've been shooting it for a couple of years and i'll keep on shooting it so i don't know and i i I have no interest in what it's called you know i'm just making a film you know and that's Underwood, that's the Empyrean, that's both separate. Uh, that's Underwood, yeah. So yeah. that's one of the feature films. That's about yeah. 80% shot. And then the other feature film which I'm shooting is called The Empyrean, which is a five-character ensemble film inspired by like, like Altman and, and um, jo- uh, Nick, Nick Rogue and uh, filmmakers like Zulowski who made Possession. So it's a, it's a film about the psychosis of love and features a telepath and serial killers. And, and, uh, and, but it's also casting all non-actors and... There are scenes, to give you an example of the methodology, um, we've sh- uh, cast an amazing couple, a uh, young guy, Odie. Um, he's half Cherokee, half Russian, he's 24 years old. He's an ex-gang member, he's been in and out of jail. Um, he's, uh, he's homeless. Um, and uh, we put him for the duration of the shoot, which we just did in February, in a house uh, with his partner. So he's living in a house which is our location. It's not their actual house, but wanted them to experience this, the the rhythms of domesticity and it's their bedroom this is your kitchen um and our production office is in the backyard so at any moment we can come in to their house and shoot sometimes purely observational documentary scenes of them cooking breakfast sometimes it's a highly dramatized scene of uh, a confession of infidelity so totally not ever scripted but you know improvised and with a dramatic framework um like a, a a skeletal kind of dramatic intent and shape for the story but you know to give you an example uh we shot uh, a scene which is like a sort of a, a, rob- a pre-robbery uh preparation scene between a couple of Odie's friends who are again have just gotten out of prison they're talking about not wanting go, to go back to jail so they're going to commit this robbery um and uh which was you know filled with amazing real detail and amazing again as Bentley said every single time you shoot a scene in that fashion you realize how um how humbled you are as a writer because your you know very schematic very singular um intention is is rendered totally obsolete by the nuances and cadences and beautiful like lexicon of the like this midwest crims that i was hanging out with is great um and humor as well you know the the most serious scenes you write which would otherwise be these kind of on the nose kind of melodramatic dirges suddenly like this kind of gallows humor beautifully like tonal to- this tonal shifts that you'd never expect so that, that's the joy of working with people playing themselves is they just take that material and they they tear it apart and put it back for you <laughs> nine times out of ten in a more interesting fashion unfortunately although that's a very i think appropriate uh way to unfortunately have to to close this session because there's something another session coming right into this cinema in about two minutes 
but look, thank you all for your time. Please thank Emil. Please thank Beck. Please thank Matt. Please thank Bentley Dean. And also um, the producer of this session, Sari Braithwaite. Thank you, Sari. Um, and I hope that was valuable for you. It certainly was for me. Cheers. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.